said, my name's Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview. Uh, you will not often see me up at, here at your campus at North. Um, that's because I spend most of my time at Central working with groups and with equipping. Uh, but it's my great pleasure to be here. I think this is maybe my third time here with you guys. Um, it's always just a joy to come up here. Uh, Josh is a great friend. Um, you've got a great man in him. And as I look out, I see many familiar faces. So it's good to be here with you on the Lord's Day. For so long, uh, God's people worshiped on Saturday, and one day they said, uh, you know what, Jesus has risen from the grave, we should, we should do Sunday. And so it's good, I just, whenever it's Sunday and we get together, I just, I just remember, Jesus is alive, and so we have to get together, we have to sing. Um, and so today we get to do the same thing as we read God's word and try to understand and apply it to our lives. So let's begin this way. For me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Uh, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. It's garbage to me. For this, for the, that I might know Christ, that I might gain him. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In the geography of the letter to the Philippians, these are the Rockies. These are the highest peaks, the, the highest heights. These are uh, verses that many of you probably memorized. Uh, you, you recognize them as I read them to you. Uh, you maybe you even memorized them by accident. You never, didn't even intend to, um, but they're just in your brain. Today's passage, uh, it, I would guess, is not going to fit in that category. Let me, let me read it to you just as dramatically. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. It's not, it's, it's, okay, it's not a zinger, you know. It's not to live as Christ, to die as gain. Um, and, and so we have to ask ourselves, uh, when I read this passage to you, um, it's probably not going to be one that's familiar to you. Uh, when you read it, you're going to say, oh yeah, these were letters. He, he had to say some stuff. He had to get a few things across. Um, it, he's going to tell us about Timothy. He's going to tell us about Epaphroditus and his plans for his travel and how he's going to send them and what's going to happen. And yet, it would appear, and, and some people have temp been tempted to treat this as if it's just a mere business section to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Here's a few items. I read some really unflattering monikers. As I was studying for this, a couple of my favorite were, that the, they called this passage, what's next regarding Paul and his affairs? That's pretty boring. My personal favorite, future plans, which not only is redundant, all plans are future, but it's also very boring. <laughs> uh, what a shame. Uh, I mean, the fact is that while scripture is written for us, for our benefit, uh, this letter was not written to us. Timothy is not coming to visit our church. I'm sorry. Uh, Epaphroditus, we will not see him until the other side of glory. He's not coming. Okay, Paul, his case is closed. It's, it's, it's over for him. But 
uh, we have to ask ourselves as we read a passage like this, which I know I'm, this is a long lead time to, to get into the passage, but we have to ask ourselves, how are we meant to learn from a passage like this? It's not just business plans. Of course, Timothy and Epaphroditus aren't coming, but the Lord is coming, and he wants us to know these things about his world. He wants us to know these things about his church and how we live uh, as a community of the king. So please hear the word of the Lord for you and for us today. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. By the way, sorry, Philippians 2, 19 through 30 is our passage for today. I should have said that first. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly, I myself, will visit you is what will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all, and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He was near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray that we would listen and obey your words today from Philippians 2. Let us not discount these as irrelevant, um, but let us hear from the holy God what he says to his holy people, and let us live accordingly, following the way of Jesus, no matter where it might take us, trusting, knowing, just as we celebrate that the Lord did not stay dead but came to life, that you, you give life. There's life and light on the other side of hard obedience. So let us do this. Let us obey you today. Let us be the community of the King. We pray in your name. Amen. Andy Warhol is probably one of the best-known American artists, probably the best-known American artist to ever live. And in his most famous work, which I'm sure many of you have seen, I don't know where these monitors are. Oh, over there. Okay, I was like, is there a thing? Okay. Um, in probably his most famous work, many of you have seen this, um, he deployed his particular lens on the world, and he wanted to show people what, what it looked like, their, the American obsession with celebrity. Uh, he really blew up because, of course, this was right around the time when Marilyn Monroe uh, tragically died, um, but he really captivated the nation with his particular lens on American life. Uh, an original of this uh, work recently sold for over $38 million. If you'll pardon the expression, this, Marilyn, I can't even say the title of it. This, this is something like Warhol's Philippians 121, to live as Christ, if you'll pardon the expression. Everyone, you, you've, you've probably seen this even if you hate art, right? You've, you've seen or you've seen something in this style. Um, and can you just keep going through them? There, but there's a force animating all of his work. You've seen some of these things. 
so that when you see even the less significant works that he has made, it's clear that his mark is there. You see the lens through which he viewed the world. You see the brush strokes. Here we have, you know, eight Elvises. This sold for over $100 million, okay? One of the most expensive pieces of art ever made. And go to the last one. So that even when you see this, you realize you see the brush strokes of his lens through which he viewed the world. It's impossible to, you go, yeah, that's a Warhol. In the same way, we look at this passage in Philippians 2, 19 through 30, and even though this seems maybe it's one of his lesser known works, right? It's, it, it seems like maybe this is a mundane matter. Uh, Paul could not help but emote and write and communicate, even about travel plans, even about future plans, through the lens of the gospel, And so there is much for us to learn about what it means to be a community of the gospel by examining the way that this apostle, Paul, interacts with his people in Philippi. And so I want you to receive this charge from Philippians 2.19, and I want to show show it to you. Cultivate, Parkview, cultivate a gospel culture by embodying the gospel pattern of Jesus. Cultivate a gospel culture by embodying the gospel pattern of Jesus. In Philippians 2, we learned all about, uh, through this big Christ hymn, Christ who died, Christ who was raised, this gospel-shaped, downwardly mobile, not upwardly mobile, but downwardly mobile, self-forgetful, others-favoring pattern in the Christian life is embodied here in Paul's description about Timothy and very explicitly in the case of Epaphroditus. We see Paul first, and these are our points for today, first contemplating the gospel pattern in his description of Timothy, then commending the gospel pattern in his update on Epaphroditus, and finally, inviting us, the church, to complete the gospel pattern by responding rightly to Epaphroditus. But first, as I said, we see the gospel pattern contemplated. Now we see this in verses 19 through 24, in Paul's commendation in the the way that he speaks about Timothy. Uh, This passage really centers around Paul's demonstration of of the gospel pattern. Okay, I've said the gospel pattern enough times that you're wondering, what am I talking about? Okay, he intentionally refers back when he describes Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, Philippians, you Philippian people, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And he knows we should be, ping, their own interests and flip back in Philippians 2, 4, and I'll just read it to you where he said, three and four, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is the charge he gave them before. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of Jesus Christ. And so he says about Timothy, they all look to their own interests, not to those of Jesus Christ. Timothy, here is Timothy, one who has absorbed the gospel pattern and embodied it. You, you know his proven worth, he says to the Philippians. Now I want you to know why he is worthy because you remember what I said about you guys not, not being selfish, not having self-interest, and in fact having the mind of Jesus. And he, he comes into this beautiful hymn. He says, Jesus, the one uh, who, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, he didn't take all his power and say, I can subject all things, I can do whatever I want, I can make a world that's great for me. He said, no, I'll let anyone climb on top of my back because I'm just gonna, I'm gonna lower myself, even obeying to the point of death, take the form of a servant, not the form of a king, and instead he goes to death But then, God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every name. And so in the end, this this pattern goes like this. He does not take his his power and and go, I can go as high as I want with all his power. He says, no, I'm going to take my power and use it so that others can go up. 
even though it means I'm going to go down. And then God verifies it, verifies the truth of this, of this pattern by exalting Jesus, saying, I'm not going to leave you down there in the grave. I'm going to lift you up to life. Look at Timothy. If Jesus was too far of an example, probably the Philippians didn't know Jesus, is almost sure. Uh, look at Timothy. Timothy, you know. And I want you to know Timothy is someone that you can look at as an example. Don't embrace the gospel of upward mobility that this world has been selling us since Eden. Embrace and embody the downward mobility of the gospel by faith. Don't grasp for meaning and significance. Use it so that others might go up. This, Paul says, is the way to true humility. It's the way that the church is beautified, and it's the way that we are meant to relate to one another. And this is how Paul brings this argument to a practical head, by bringing in practical examples. Here's Timothy. Look at Timothy. Our lives individually are meant to show this this gospel pattern. See, Parkview, it's one thing for us to have good gospel doctrine, right? Jesus is the one who pays for our sins. We have a debt before God. We are cut off from him. We are We are cut off from the life of God because of sin, and Jesus is the one who has come. He's lived the perfect life we should live. He died on our behalf, and we're needy sinners, but he comes and says, give up control of your life, give it to me, and and I will rescue you. And my past, perfect past, will become your perfect past, and my beautiful future will become your beautiful future. And this, it's good to have good gospel doctrine, but it's possible to have a gospel culture in our church Sorry, to have a culture in our church that functionally denies our gospel doctrine. This is the way that we will slip off of the truth is, is probably not by one day just waking up and saying, you know what, I'm not sure if we can say Jesus died. It's by the everyday patterns. It is so much more insidious. It is so much more dangerous. It is so much more subtle We need to, in the way that we relate to one another, it must match the pattern of Jesus. Our our pattern of living must match our source of life. Does does the way that we relate to one another, Parkview, does does it verify the gospel of grace? That is the question we have to answer. And that's because our culture... Our culture always encodes our deepest values, always. I remember um, when I went on a trip to uh, a, an Eastern Bloc country, I went to Ukraine, mission trip, and it was really cool, uh, but they had to prepare us for this different culture that we're going into, and I remember the most devastating, well, not devastating, that's dramatic, the most strange thing to me as someone who loves food was when, uh, okay, it was really fun because like, we felt really rich there because the currency exchange was, really, you know, whatever. So we could like, buy a chocolate bar and it was like 10 cents. We're like, this is great, you know, let's eat a lot of candy. And um, we'd be sitting around and we'd get in the room with a bunch of Ukrainians, you know, and we'd be like, ah, I'm gonna eat my chocolate bar. You whip it out and they'd all look at you like, they're saying, what are you doing? Pass it around, okay, because that's what you do, right? You don't just open up the candy bar and it's my candy bar and I'm going to eat my candy bar because it's all mine. I bought it. It's mine. My candy bar. See how I said mine? Right. 
Because, <laughs> and this wasn't, I, I mean, this wasn't just something they, they came up with. This embodied at the deepest level of their culture, uh, obviously partly through, you know, communism, which was part of what they grew up with, was the idea nothing belongs to just you. It belongs to all of us. So you don't even take a bite. You open your candy bar, hand it to the person on your right, it goes around, and whatever's left, yeah, eat some of that. It might be gone. It literally might be gone, and it turns out it wasn't your candy bar. You didn't know it. You bought it, it wasn't your candy bar. But it, it, that, that, that's culture, right? That's, that's a pattern of relating to one another that, that showed their deepest beliefs. And so we have to ask each other, like I said, where does our culture, at, at Parkview, at North Campus even, our pattern of living, where, is it, where could it be functionally denying our belief in the sufficiency, the goodness of the gospel? And I have to say, uh, I'm, I guess I'm speaking as Parkview as a whole, but the greatest threat to our gospel culture, to being a place where the gospel is verified, displayed and verified, is individualism. Individualism. That is, I have my rights, I can say no whenever I want, and I can say yes whenever I want, and I don't really belong to anyone, I, I have no obligations. Individualism is a practical denial of the gospel by putting the rights of myself above the rights of, of, of the group. It, it denies the gospel uh, by claiming that we can be self-sufficient people. That we aren't really all that needy, as needy as the gospel seems to say that we are. That we can choose relationships that benefit us and at any point cut off a relationship that is costing more than it is benefiting. And the main way I've seen this, this is, this is not an active, you know, denial, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passive sort of separation from others. And that is why it's so insidious for us. It's so, it's hard to see. It's subtle. It's, none of us look at this, you know, look around the room and say, mm, you know, these people, I'm just going to do me, right? That's not how it works. But Paul, as we see here, he is explaining relationships of incredibly deep reciprocity, of dependence on one another, of deep affection, of profound community. People of Parkview, we have to, we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, we all have to ask ourselves, if, if you were uprooted from this place, how would it change life for the person sitting next to you? How, how much would this church change? How much would your life change? First Peter describes the church as, as stones that are being built into a building. And, and, and I've, I've loved that image lately uh, because we see in Jesus, uh, our, our natural way, not in Jesus, but our natural way is we say, oh, okay, so um, I say, I'm kind of down here. I'd like to be up there on the prettier part. Ah, you're going to have to go down so I can go up. But what Jesus does is he says, you know what? I see you guys, you're doing really well. In fact, I'm doing great. I'm way up here, but I'm going to go down so that all you guys can go up, right? And, and I think when we read this letter from the, to the Philippians, we see this was the case. People were saying, I'm going to go up. You're going to have to go down, but it's okay because it's all about me, right? And my fear is at Parkview, we almost can't relate to that because I feel like we're not looking like this. We're just sort of, we're, we're so spread out. 
I'm not even sure if it looks like we're in that close of community that we could even be hurt by one another in that way. Do you see what I mean? But as being built together as stones, as First Peter says, one way we can, we can investigate our hearts on this is to say, who, who is supporting you, right? Who, who's the stone below you whose life would be really, uh, who, who your life would really be shaken if they weren't there for you? Who's the person above you who if, if you weren't here, man, their life would really grow difficult. Who depends on you? Who, do you allow people to make demands of you? This, this is incredibly difficult. I know this is different. This is, this is challenging. But my greatest fear is that we've settled for a form of Christianity that allows us to leave each Sunday with our hands washed of any obligation to the person on my right and my left. And that's a tragedy. It doesn't always look like saying, you know, I'm, I'm too good to serve here. I, I worry that it actually looks like, and this, in my community group last week, wow, if this sounds like I'm going in, it's because it happened in my community group last week when we went through uh, the passage right before this. Uh, because I read it, you know, as you've always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? Every one of us reads that, and the your is a singular. Your salvation. God works in you. You, Billy, Bob, Mary, whatever. And, but it's not. It's plural. Work out y'all salvation, for God works in y'all, right? Do, can you see how that changes the way we read that passage? But we just naturally, I mean, it's the fault of Engl- the English language, first of all, but uh, it's, it's also because we just naturally read it that way. It could be a poor, it could be, we don't like the gospel. We don't like living in community with people. We don't like, need, I don't like needing people. It makes me feel poor. It makes me feel out of control. It makes me feel, it, it takes everything away, but that's what the gospel calls us to. To live in a community that reminds, I am needy. I'm needy. The, the gospel tells us, you know how bad I was? Nothing less than the sacrifice of the best person to ever live could, could do it for me. That's how needy. You, you've never met a beggar on the street who is more needy than I am spiritually. That's how needy I am. Does our community reflect that? I think that's a, the question that we need to ask. We must cultivate a gospel culture that is by embodying this gospel pattern of Jesus. And I think one of those ways is we just, we just got to be in community. A practical application of this would be, uh, and I know many, many of you are, are getting charged up for the membership class, but become members. Becoming a member is sort of like getting married to the church. We make vows to one another, right? We call them the, the covenant, you know, commitment to one another. Uh, we, we commit to supporting one another financially. We commit to all these things. Uh, so join, become a member, formalize uh, your place in the community. Secondly, if you're not part of a community group, it's, it's pretty tough to look out in this room and see that kind of deep integration and connection with one another, supporting one another, reminding one another of our need in the gospel and, and how Jesus meets us. It's hard to do that in a, in a room of 100. What you need is something a little bit smaller, and that's exactly what community groups are meant to do, to be a place, I'm not going to share all my dirtiest stuff, laundry up here, you know, anyone? No, okay, uh, but you need a group of people where you can actually do that, where you can say, okay, I'm part of this big building that's 100 bricks wide, but I'm really close with these five that are right around me, right? Uh, you need that community. Do it, join a community group. And yet, I, I, and I have good news. I know that that's a hard challenge. That's a hard challenge. The good news is we can't do it. The good news is it, I, I can't make you feel bad enough to change. The Bible's pretty clear, okay? 
our, our problem is not primarily that we, that we haven't thought enough about others or that we're, you know, constantly trying to seize our power. That's the primary problem is we don't really believe Jesus isn't dead. We don't really believe, we don't believe that God is, is really powerful enough uh, that if we follow down the dark, the dark and dark, and deadly road of obedience down where we can't see around us. We start losing control and, and just like Jesus did, going down all the way, obeying all the way down to death, that if we do that, God will actually resurrect. God, God will actually give life. We, we don't believe it. I don't believe it. So much of the time, I don't believe it. And yet, the good news is, God has given us an incredibly generous return policy on our broken, broken hearts. It's a lifetime return policy he is longing for us to return our hearts to him today in worship and obedience to him. And he says, you know what? It's going to be scary, but I know what it's like to go down to the darkness of death because I went down there before you. And I came out on the other side. Ask God for a heart that will believe this, that will enable us to be that, that needy. It's, it's freeing to be needy when we know that our needs will be met by a gracious God. And that's, that's what we have so that is the gospel pattern. And if you're wondering, are all three points that long? No, they aren't. Uh, <laughs> next, we, we see this gospel pattern, this going down and coming out the other side in obedience. This gospel pattern commended. This gospel pattern commended. And this is the case of Epaphroditus. Uh, in Timothy's case, uh, this gospel pattern life, it was sort of mentioned a little bit obliquely. He's, you, know, you know his proven worth. It's because he, he, he considers your needs higher than his own. He's concerned for your welfare. They seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. Look to him, you know. But with Epaphroditus, we see an incredible uh, resonance between the case of Epaphroditus and, and the gospel pattern of Jesus. You know, he says, I, I told you about Timothy in general, but now let me tell you about Epaphroditus in particular, okay? Take a look at this. Cons- consider, consider Epaphroditus. What a long name. Pappy, right? I'm sure they call him Pappy, don't you think? I feel like they call him Pappy. Consider Pappy, right? My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. That would have meant a lot to a Roman colony full of soldiers. Your messenger, your minister to my mean. Consider, Paul says, consider the last two months of Epaphroditus' life and how they followed the pattern, not for his own interests, but for yours. Epaphroditus was so committed to you, Philippians, he was willing to make a journey of over 700 miles. It would have taken him over, over a month, two trips at sea. And what's more, even though he almost died on this journey, travel was not like we worry about getting on an airplane, maybe it's going to crash. This was not abnormal for you to get sick on the road or to get attacked on the road. He took this perilous journey, right? He fell deathly ill, and though he was drawing near to death, see the similarities with Jesus? Though he drew near to death, now he's fully healed up, right? And guess what? You'd think after that sort of thing, he'd have some kind of like, you know what, I think I'm going to stay home. Could you find someone else to send back? No, actually, Epaphroditus says, I'm so concerned for their concern. I'm so burdened for their burdened that I've got to go back. I, I don't care what it costs. I've got to go back. Look to him. And Paul uses some really fun wordplay here where he said, his name, Epaphroditus, it's a Greek word, and it means favored of, a, of a, uh, Aphrodite. Aphrodite was, among other things, the goddess of gambling. And, uh, and so when he says, risk your life, Paul actually makes up a word that it would probably be better to be translated gambled. Epaphroditus gambled his life for you. He bet the house on serving you. 
He, he did not hold anything back. He rolled the dice with his life on the line. When, when, we get, when we roll, you know, and get Yahtzee, you know, we're like, Yahtzee, right? When a Greek person rolled two sixes, a gambler rolled two sixes, they yelled, Epaphroditus. As Paul is saying, here, Epaphroditus is this incredible gambler. He was willing to gamble even his life on you guys. He was willing to risk his life. Do you see these deep resonances between Epaphroditus and the way that he, he serves these people, even to the point of death, and now he's willing to do it all over again on the way back. He, he, and it, it looks reckless, right? He gives up, and let me, yeah, I'll go back. Let me, let me take that journey again. In the 1985 hit movie, Back to the Future, which I hope you've seen, uh, the main character, Marty McFly, of course, first he goes forward in time, goes to 19, or, sorry, 2015, where he sees, of course, the Cubs are going to win the World Series. There's only one year off. Pretty good. Uh, uh, but he's tempted, and I think, I forget if he actually does, but he's tempted to buy a sports almanac. And so it would have sort of all the sports results for the major sports for the last, you know, 50 years or whatever, thinking, hmm, maybe I could go back in time, go back to 1985, maybe take a little trip to Las Vegas, and I'd just go look through the book, find the biggest upset that there ever was, maybe like 5,001 odds, take all the money out of my bank account, stick it on that, and you know, everyone in the room would be, what is he doing? What is Marty doing? He's betting all that. This guy's never going to win. And then he would just walk casually over to the cashier with his ticket as the final shot banked in, and he would just, wow, he'd be so wealthy, he'd be so rich, right? And, and we look at what would look like recklessness would actually not be recklessness at all because he was so convinced of the outcome that, yeah, why would I bet $5? I'm going to bet everything. I already know what's going to happen. The last shot goes in. He's, they win. It's, it was 5,001. They're the biggest underdog in history. I've, of course. Yeah, let me, of course. I'll, I'll bet it all. So it is with Epaphroditus. It wasn't a risk. He, wa- he wasn't really risking it. He wasn't really rolling the dice. Why? Because Jesus rose from the grave. There is life on the other side of painful obedience. When Jesus comes in and flips our value system on its head, we will look reckless to those. How can you give away that kind of love? How can you be that committed to that kind of person? What if, what if they ask too much? How could, you do, how could you give up that much? You're going to give up money for that? You're going to give up your money? You're going to give up your time? You're really going to? What about, what about, what about, just as, as he was walking to the cashier check, oh, don't worry, I know exactly how this ends. I know exactly, this is no gamble to me at all. We know the final score. Jesus isn't dead. And so, bet the house. Plunge in. Uh, Don't dip your toe in. Don't put $5 on the line and just to to see if it, no. Gospel belief will give us incredible, and I'm literally incredible, unbelievable, otherworldly, very confusing courage because we are so sure when the gospel comes in, like I said, return your heart to him today. But help me believe that this could actually be true. Can you imagine a church? Can you imagine Parkview North Campus being filled with this kind of confidence that allows you to take such risks that you can go down into the darkest circumstances, you can go down and serve one another in such a way that will look to the world around you like you are crazy. What is with those people? They will do anything for one another. They will do anything that the gospel might go forward. How can they do it? And we will say, you know why we can do it? We're just following the pattern of Jesus. Like, he went all the way to death. 
and God exalted him. God brought him out. Of course he's going to take care of me. In this passage, we see not only that Epaphroditus was an example of someone who embraced this gospel pattern uh, by way of application, we also see that this relationship between Epaphroditus and Paul and also between Paul and Timothy uh, is, is very... Is, is also an example of this gospel culture. He, Paul, in, in the previous passage, he calls Timothy his, his son in the gospel, his gospel son. You know Timothy's proven worth. How's a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. That's powerful. My fe- he calls Epaphroditus my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He's like my fellow everything, you know. I think this gives us an excellent view into a practical application of what it would look like to to begin to cultivate this kind of of culture at Parkview, and that is intergenerational mentorship. I want to extend the call there for for first to those who are mature, or you know, who would say, I'm I'm a mature believer in Christ. Uh, If you're here, an older man or woman, look, we need you. We, We just need you. We, we cannot be a church filled with gospel orphans. Uh, I'm a guy who grew up for a large part of my life without fathers. And um, there's a beautiful place in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you have many teachers, you have many guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. I become your father in the gospel. And that, that exactly was my experience. When I went through college ministry, I needed men to come into my life to show me what it meant to follow Jesus. We need you. You, you, you will never retire as a Christian from gospel ministry. There, there is something to be had here. If every generation has to come back and, and rediscover and reinvent what it looks like to follow Jesus at each life stage, look, bury us now. I mean... We're, not, we're just not going to make it. We can't bury our wisdom in the sand. We, we need you. I don't, I don't care if that means you're 30 and you see a guy over there who's, who's 20, or if you're 20 and you see a guy over there who's 13 and doesn't have a dad, or if you're 60 and you see someone across the room who's struggling, they need to parent their kids, right? We need you. I need you. I need you. Me, Thomas, needs you. The guys in this room need you. Woman, same thing. Older men, find a Timothy. Find, find your Epaphroditus in this room, right? I give you license, right? Uh, older woman, find, find a gospel daughter. A, a, adopt them. Let's create a gospel culture by giving and receiving this kind of wisdom for the glory of Jesus. Don't let it evaporate into the air. We, we just need you. And finally, uh, the last thing we see here in verses 29 and 30 is that the gospel pattern is actually completed. The gospel pattern completed. We see Paul extraordinarily inviting the church to be part of this process, to be part of this pattern. Sorry, this pattern. And so he ends his explanation of his plans with Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he gives them actually two commands. Uh, This whole thing, it sort of just looks like a travelogue, but then at the end, he actually does give two commands to this church. And it says, so in verse 29, receive him, that is Epaphroditus, receive him, That's a command. Receive him in the Lord with all joy. And, second command, honor such men. Um, It doesn't say, it it just says such as these, really, is what it means. It, it, It just says such as these. But such people, such people who have followed the gospel pattern. 
And so we get this glimpse of how the church is meant to participate in the gospel pattern. As we've seen, Paul has sort of gone to pains to show us how Epaphroditus, he has followed the gospel pattern by giving up his own self-interest, even though it took him down, down, down into the dark and dirty waters of death. He didn't quite, he drew near to death, but God had mercy. And, and so here's, in so many ways, it follows the pattern of Jesus. Here's Jesus, who's great, and then he gives, up, he gives up out of self-interest, out of self-interest, he dies, and then God exalts him, Right? Remember that in the gospel pattern in 6 through 11? I don't want to re-preach what was surely an excellent sermon from Josh. Um, But there's one thing missing in in the sort of analogy between Epaphroditus' way of following the gospel pattern and and Jesus. At at the end of Jesus' journey into the dark, dirty waters of death and, and obedience comes exaltation, resurrection, uh, glory. We don't have that here. Actually, at that point, that's exactly where Paul puts his command. Epaphroditus has done his part of the gospel pattern by going down, 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 giving up self-interest for others, committing to others, and even though it took him low. And now he says, here is your role to play, church. You are to complete the gospel pattern While Jesus went to death and was exalted by Jesus, Epaphroditus, who has followed the gospel pattern down, 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 nearly to death, you are to honor. You are to exalt. You are to play. Uh, You are to be the community where it is clear that God is present by doing analogously what Jesus will one day do, or sorry, what, what the Father will one day do for all of us at the end of time, that is, exalt us. Let's be a place where the gospel pattern, which looks crazy, which looks nonsensical, which looks dangerous, which looks like gambling with our life, with our money, with our time, is exalted, is, is held high. It, it, should be such, it should be such a relief to come into to Sunday morning worship service. We spend all our time out in, there in the world where, where it's just doggy dog Get, get what you can, use every resource you can to get above everyone else, and we come to the church, and <sighs> this is where I belong, okay. When you walk out in the world and everything seems upside down to you, coming back in the church should be like the horizon, you've stepped off of the boat that's constantly, and oh, finally, I'm on firm ground, and what is true is held high. Let's be a community where we exalt Christ by exalting those who follow him, those who take the way of low status, those who do what we learned in Philippians 2, 6 to 11 about Jesus. We could go so far as to say here that a gospel culture will in some way foreshadow, uh, it will in some sense complete maybe, it will some sense, it will at least verify the gospel pattern. There's a participation. There's something for us to do, that is. Let's our, our, let our community groups be a place, where we, a place of honor where we look at people who have done this and we say, look at, look at them. Let's follow them. Let's, let's do it. And at the end of this, we will be a place. We will be a moving and living and breathing theater of the gospel where the upside-down values of Jesus' kingdom, they don't look ridiculous. They look totally natural. Let's make much of King Jesus. Let's follow the way of Jesus that we've learned, having the mind of Christ, living in deep unity with one another, and affirming and verifying the gospel by embodying the pattern of Jesus. Let's pray.